I invite you to open your Bibles to the Old Testament, to the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be looking at several texts, but we'll start uh, by looking at uh, a verse from chapter 16. I'll read it in a moment. And a special welcome to those we've turned on the, the live stream and those joining us from their homes or on a iPhone or on a laptop, uh, whatever. We're glad to have you with us uh, for the live stream and the preaching of God's word. God still speaks in this world through his word, his unchanging word, and he has something for us today. Uh, may he give us ears to hear. The scripture I'd like to start with is this key verse in the middle of chapter 16 about David when he is chosen amongst all his brothers to be the next king of Israel. And this morning, as we summarize the book of 1 Samuel, and look at what God's message is in this whole book. This is at the heart of the message. You'll see what I mean. Verse 7 from God's word. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. The, Lord looks, the man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. May the Lord bless the preaching, hearing, believing, and obeying of his holy word today. I enjoy speaking of history, and history helps us to understand the time and, and talk about kings, even though we don't have kings really today. Uh, it just so happens that uh, I wanted to mention this one battle between uh, the English and the French. I know the French were, and English were always battling. But if you go back uh, several hundred years to 1415, uh, there was a specific battle called the Battle of Angincourt, where the king of the English army does something amazing, something unusual. You see, it was going on the Hundred Years' War between uh, Britain and France, and and the British had, had not wanted to continue negotiations, so they took to battling and through disease and a few losses, their forces were dwindling. And they said, we better get out of France. And so the English armies, this is October, this is fall of 1415, they, they made for the coast to the port city of Calais, where they still held it and they could get their ships across to the cliffs of Dover. But they were blocked. The French army, much, much larger than them, uh, blocked them. And so they engaged on St. Crispin's Day in this battle at Angincourt. And the unexpected English victory against the numerically superior French army boosted English morale and prestige. It crippled France. And it started a new period of English dominance in the war. It's interesting. In that battle... The king himself, King Henry V of England, led his troops into battle and participated in the hand-to-hand -hand fighting. Some of you have probably seen a movie clip or read Shakespeare who, who gives the speech of the king on St. Crispin's Day. Very moving. But it wasn't all talk. He fought with his men. And when they won, surprisingly won the victory, the king ordered that Psalm 115 be sung. And as they started singing, the king prostrated himself on the ground, face down on the ground, and all his troops as well, 
in honor of the Lord as they sang out together, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. This king knew who the true king was. Indeed, in the hands of our God is the life of any king on earth. Well, I like that story because it shows a king acknowledging a true king. And when we look at the book of 1 Samuel and we've looked at King Saul and his failure and rising King David and his preparation, the story is much more than just who is going to be king among men. It's about the Lord being king of his people. It's about David's God, not so much about David. And if we're going to summarize 1 Samuel after, what, 39, 40 sermons, looking at these things in detail, that's the big takeaway. That the Lord, he is king. And he communicates to his people then and now through his word that very thing. This morning I wanted to take up uh, these three headings with you. We want to look first at the Lord as king and then see what this Lord does. How he brings low the arrogant and the wicked and how he exalts the poor and the lowly and the humble. This king rules and he lifts up and he puts down. And it's not just ancient history, it's how God works today. God deals with men and nations in their pride. And God hears the cry of the humble and the needy in their despair. Tells us a lot about God. So let's, let's begin actually with that first point, the overview. The Lord himself is king. The heart of the message is here in, in uh, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. How God looks at things differently. He doesn't look at outward appearances. He looks on hearts. Indeed, the sovereign one knows the hearts and minds of every man. And in the midst of this story, this historical unfolding of the book of 1 Samuel, God will point us to a man with a heart that pleases him. God will teach us through contrasts between Saul and David that God looks on the heart and knows us full well and requires our heartfelt trust and service. And we're looking on the heart of men. The Lord is at work among men. If you still have your Bibles open, we're going to turn to a couple of the places. Let's just pause in chapter 12 to see one thing that Samuel says about the heart of the message. You know, the book of 1 Samuel isn't all about Samuel, but it starts with Samuel. The three main characters, Samuel, Saul, and David. And the most important character is the Lord. What did Samuel say in chapter 12 as he uh, gives this farewell address and summarizes his prophetic ministry? God's spokesman says this, 1 Samuel 12 and verse 14. He says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, if both you and the king who rules over you will follow the Lord, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Interesting. 
The Lord does acquiesce and give the people a king, and yet God himself still is in control and calls for people's utmost allegiance and fear. He calls for their faith and service. There's another way, other than pulling out these great summary statements from chapter 16 and 12, to see what the theme of this whole book has been and what's the message that God wants to communicate, not just in the history but in the book that tells us of the history. As 1 Samuel was composed, it's part of a a larger book, really. 1 and 2 Samuel go together. And whoever it was that authored it, I think Samuel started it and someone else finished it. The Holy Spirit inspired the author to tell this story, to give us this historical account with indications of the theme. What am I saying? You see in the outline. I want to mention the theme of two songs. We haven't looked at 2 Samuel, and we're going to take a break. We're not going to rush into 2 Samuel. But there is a song at the end of 2 Samuel, and there's a song at the beginning of 1 Samuel. And these two songs bookend this this large message. The first is Hannah's song in chapter 2, and the second is David's You can't call it a swan song, but it's his final song, his last words, if you will, in 2 Samuel 22. Let me tell you about these two, and then we're going to look at chapter 2, so you can turn to chapter 2. These two passages are psalms or songs of God's spiritual people. Hannah's a godly woman, David is a godly man. And they speak and declare things about God that get our attention. God inspires them and their song to give us these details. 2 Samuel 22 is also found as Psalm 18. And there's only a subtle difference between the Samuel 22 and Psalm 18. And and Psalm 18 is used for public worship, so a few of the phrases are slightly changed. But both of them have very similar themes. And I have a little chart here. I'm going to bullet point just a couple of those themes. And you can find them both in chapter 2 in Hannah's song. And in 2 Samuel 22, David's song of deliverance. But we can't look at both places at the same time. So looking at chapter 2, let me highlight these themes. Which we find in both the beginning and end of the book. Because God wants us to pay attention to these themes. These themes that will be played out. In the content of the book, one of the first themes we see is in chapter 2, verse 1, as Hannah begins speaking. Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. Hannah knows the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the covenant name of God, and she exalts in him, because he saves and delivers and he protects You see that same theme in David's song. In fact, he's got more verses, and he talks about it quite a bit. Also, in this chapter, we see that God raises up the lowly and humbles the proud. This is one of the big themes of 1 and 2 Samuel. And if you know anything about Saul and David, you see that. God brings down the, the proud and raises up the lowly. We just read verse 1 of chapter 2. Let's look at verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by 
him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. And it goes on to highlight how God does these great reversals. Why does Hannah sing about that? Well, that was her experience. Remember, her husband had another wife, and this other wife had all these children. Hannah was barren, but the God raised her up. And it was her son who was Samuel, the prophet. God does these reversals. Well, how does God do that? It says, by him actions are ways. He knows right and wrong, and he does what is right. He's not fooled by the outward appearances of men. He does these great reversals. You see it again in verses 7 and 8. Very explicit language. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. I love the theology of Hannah. What a godly woman who knows God's word and knows her God. And she's saying that God uh, uh, does this lifting up and this humbling. He will judge the wicked. He will vindicate the righteous. He strengthens the weak but overpowers the strong. This is the way our God works. And Hannah knows it and she's proclaiming it. So Hannah, if I'm hearing you right, he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. Are you telling me that some teenage boy who wasn't even invited home for a big meeting with a prophet of God, he was out sitting with the sheep, hadn't really cleaned up. He's sitting, and you know, shepherd's kind of the lowest of the employment opportunities in ancient Israel. He's out with the sheep. God could take a boy who smelled like sheep and cause him to sit with princes and put him on the throne of Israel. Could God do that? Yes, God does that. Could God take an obscure monk and bring about the reformation of Christianity back in Europe in the 1500s? God does that. This is the way God works. He doesn't just go by appearances and by what men esteem. He has his own agenda and we had better dial into his agenda and learn his ways for he is Lord. And he is God. One more theme here. Both songs, Hannah's song and David's song, mention that the Lord gives strength to the king. Here in Hannah's song, it's chapter 2, verse 10. And you have to remember, Samuel's just been born. He's a baby. And there is no king in Israel. They had the period of the judges. They'd had Moses and Joshua. But they didn't have a king. But listen to verse 10 in Hannah's song. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah the prophet. There is going to be a king in Israel. And that's part of what the book was written. Great transition period coming. But it's God who gives strength to a king. And it's God who anoints his servants to serve him and to care for his people. 
These are some of the themes. And in David's song, David reflects, you've been so good. You've given me strength as a king. David's closing song isn't really about him. It's all about this Lord, even as Hannah's song is about the Lord. And the book of Samuel is really about who God is and how he will rule his people. The Lord, he is king. This history of redemption takes an important step in 1 Samuel. We hadn't been talking about kings among God's people. Do you remember your Bible history? God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. I'll give you a land. I'll make you a great people. There wasn't talk of a king. There were patriarchs. There was a family tree. There were elders. And then God sent prophets. And then God sent a deliverer named Moses. God didn't say, I'm going to give you a Pharaoh after my own heart. No, it was just Moses. But now in the promised land, as God's people had struggled to root out all the inhabitants as they were supposed to do and, and take uh, full possession of the promised land, comes first and second Samuel and this great transitional epoch in redemptive history. He gives them the promised land through a king of his choosing. God expresses his rule over the people he's called to himself by giving them a new office by which to view him. I will give you a king. Your first king that you choose for yourself, that'll teach you a lesson. But then I will give you a king after my own heart. And so he sets the stage. And the Old Testament gives us three offices, prophet, priest, and now king. That we might understand who our God is and who our Lord Jesus is as prophet, priest, and king. So this is a strategic book to reveal God as king and God's rule through the king of his choosing. It makes sense then Samuel's summary that we looked at from verse uh, from chapter 12. Fear the Lord, serve him with all your heart. Consider what things, great things he has done for you. Tom Schreiner writes uh, theological books and commentaries. Great author. And he has a, a book that summarizes the, uh, the Bible and, and looking at what are the great themes. And he sees the, the kingdom of God as the great theme of the Bible. And when he looks at Hannah's song here, Tom Schreiner says Hannah's song becomes a reality in David's life. David, as the man who suffered, was also exalted. Jehovah put down the rich and exalted the poor. Already, he says, we see how David's life anticipates and corresponds to the life of Jesus. For suffering precedes glory. The Lord is showing himself in the office of king, and he's setting the stage for Jesus. Well, we mentioned in this list of great themes, God's lifting up and putting down. Let's just focus on those two themes as we look at Saul and David by way of summary. The arrogant are brought low. That's a reference to Saul. You see, Samuel, the book of Samuel reveals something profound. As people turn their backs on God and his ways, the results are catastrophic, says one commentator. What was true in their day is true for ours. Arrogant hearts are brought low. And apart from God's gracious help, our sins would swallow us whole. Saul tries to teach us that. And before Saul, there's a couple of other examples of how the arrogant are brought low. There's the example of Eli. At the very beginning of the book, as Samuel grows up, the little boy, he's the first character that we saw on the scene. You remember this many, many weeks ago. 
Samuel is prophesying and, and serving the Lord while the, the, the priest and uh, Eli and his sons were wicked. They were bad. And God takes them down even as he raises up Samuel. And we read about that. And, and Samuel's godliness is evident to all even as Eli and his sons and their debauchery is known. In chapter 3, verse 19, Samuel was said to grow, and Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. That was chapter 3, verse 19, and in chapter 3, 21, that other um, reference. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Samuel's raised up and Eli's taken out. Just a small episode from early in the book. Then we also see the fall of the Philistines, chapters 5 and 6. Do you remember that episode? The Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines, and they took it home as a little trophy. We have conquered, we have conquered. And they take the, the Ark, and they put it in the, the temple of their god, Dagon. And, ooh, look at this. Sit at the feet of Dagon. And in the morning, Dagon's harm the statue tumbles and eventually falls and his head breaks off and they realize that having the ark of god didn't mean they won it means they're in trouble and plagues come upon them people are dying and they say we got to get this ark out of here the proud and the arrogant god puts down in his time at one point, he didn't bring his people out of captivity to the promised land because he said, those people in the promised land, their iniquity is not yet full. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He gives men ample time to repent. But hear me, God will bring low the arrogant, the self-righteous, those who are full of themselves. It may be at the last day, it may be in this life. What we see in this book is that God's reign and rule is no theological abstraction. God will put down those Philistines. And in the end, he will do it through David. At the pinnacle of David's reign as king, those are the golden years of Israel. Their, their territory, if you have your Bible map of the kingdom of David, it spreads. And it becomes enriched. And the enemies of God are vanquished and put out of the land finally under his king. God's showing us what he's like and his rule in the rise and fall of the wicked. God is holy. He will not allow these idol worshipers to disrespect him for long. He dealt with those Philistines without a single soldier of Israel. That's what I like about that story. Just the ark sitting there scared him to death. And they send it back with interest. But the main picture we have of rising and falling, and the falling in particular, is the life of Saul, starting in chapter 9 through the end of the book. And we've covered all this ground, so I'm just going to remind you of, of one or two parts of Saul. He, he, he's, he's the guy who stands head and shoulders above everybody else, if you remember his physical description. And, and people pick him to be king. And yes, the Lord is at work sovereignly behind the scenes. The people want a king, I'll give him Saul, and that will be a lesson for them. People's selfish ambitions and the sovereign will of God are both at work. And God says to Samuel, go ahead, let him be king. Give him what they ask for. But this line of kings through Saul 
will only be one king long. God is done with Saul after just a few chapters for Saul's disobedience, for his arrogance, for his pride. Let me point out one detail that jumps out some of the texts we're seeing today. And if you can't remember the Hebrew word, that's okay. I always have to look it up myself. Gaboa for tall or for height. Gaboa. It occurs several times in, in Samuel. And we first saw it in chapter 16 when, when God says, uh, God doesn't look on the appearance. God doesn't look on the height of a man. Remember that verse. It's on our program. But God looks on the heart. Interesting that God uses the word for appearance by mentioning height. There are a lot of things you could talk about the width of a man or the height of a man. Why does God say he doesn't look on the height of a man when they're choosing a replacement for Saul? Turn to chapter 9, verse 2. Chapter 9, verse 2, one of the key factors that people wanted a king like the nations, they wanted a king like Saul because he was tall, tall, dark, and handsome, or whatever the cliche says. The description in verse 9, there was a man, chapter 9, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Berkorah, uh, some other names, and verse 2, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the other people. And you know the Hebrew word for taller now, right? What was it? Gaboa. That's just, now they're just a regular word. I mean, it's, it's not some fancy technical term. It's just the word for taller. And the text takes time to point that out. Because through history, God is unfolding what Hannah sang about, that God will take those who are tall in their own heart, in pride and arrogance. And Saul just happens to represent that physically. So the king that the people take are the ones he will put down. And yes, back in Hannah's song, chapter 2, Gaboa appeared. I tried not to emphasize it when we were there, but let me remind you that it's there and it's fleshed out in the story. Back in Hannah's song, chapter 2, verse 3, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. Don't talk so highly. The word Geboah modified to be the, it's play its role in that verse. Right off the bat, through Hannah, God tells his people what he expects. I'm in charge and you're not. You're my people. I'll be your God. I'll keep my word. I'll care for you. I'll shepherd you. And if you want a king, don't forget, I am your king. But God will bring Saul low because he's that way. Well, what did Saul do? To show and display that arrogance. We know a little bit about that. Uh, chapter 13. He was given an assignment. And uh, uh, you know Samuel said wait for me before you do this. Samuel appeared to be late. There was still time. Samuel wasn't late. Just to defend Samuel. Came just in the nick of time. But Saul hadn't waited for him. Saul went ahead and did that offering. And did what he wasn't supposed to do. And Samuel's upset when he comes. And, and just listen to how. Saul responds to a rebuke. Chapter 13, verse 12. When Saul is rebuked for this activity, he just promotes his religious fervor. Um, in verse 12 and 13. 
the Philistines will come down against me and I've not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. He was arrogant and he did what he thought was right, even though he had an explicit command from the prophet of God. And what does he do to defend himself? He asserts his religion. I, I just had to do it for the sake of everybody. I had to do it because it was the thing to be done. Expediency is not faith. Later on in chapter 15, you know Saul's greatest disobedience, which caused the kingdom to be taken from him. The Lord gave him a military assignment. Take out this people. Their time is up. And uh, don't keep things for yourself from among them. Saul kept things. Saul even built a monument to himself. And when Samuel shows up, he hears the bleeding of the sheep and says, what's going on? I hear this bounty, this, these animals, these trophies of war. You weren't supposed to keep these. Saul says, well, I did what I thought was best. And David, excuse me, Samuel rebukes him and says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? That is doing what you think you want to do. As in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15, 22. And Samuel gives the, the response. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. The Lord will put Saul down. And we've had many sermons over the last many weeks. How we must learn from Saul. To not go our own way or act in our own strength, but to be humble, to be correctable, to be repentant, to respond to the Lord. Hannah's song plays out in the rise and fall of Saul. Tall Saul. Thirdly, let's look at the faithful hearts, exalted. David's an example of this. We'll stick with David. What do we know about David from the first Samuel? Oh, we get to know him really well. Second Samuel, we see a lot more of David's sin and the fallout from that. But here, in the weeks we've been looking at him, we see the boldness of his faith. We see his pursuit of righteousness. Do we not? And we see him pointing us to Jesus. Remember the very first words of David? They're found in chapter 17. Sometimes the first thing a character says in the Bible gives you a clue about them. And uh, we hear his voice of faith in chapter 17, verse 26. Um, as in your, to set the stage, David shows up. Goliath is taunting the people of God. The armies of God, come fight me, come fight me. And Saul, King Saul, is hiding in his tent. And everybody's afraid. And I can understand that fear. But David shows up. And in verse 26, at the end, he says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What does that verse tell you? He doesn't say the armies of Saul. He doesn't say the armies of Israel. David understands that God is king. And God's people are his people. And this uncircumcised Philistine, this representative of the power and might of the world, is taunting my God? What are we going to do about this? He defies the armies of the living God. You see, for David, God wasn't just a theological abstraction. He was a reality. 
David believed in God, and David knew that God would not be mocked for long, that God raises up and lowers, and he's in charge. He's real. How many evangelical Christians in our day have a relationship with God, but they only think he's there uh, for the devotional thought that will bring a little peace to your heart? That's a cosmetic God. That's a fashion accessory God. David knows the living God. That's his testimony. And his faith is so bold. He says, I'll take care of Goliath. You want the armor? No, I don't need the armor. And then later on, he bears that testimony. What was it in verse 34 of chapter 17? And these are, this is how we're introduced to David. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock... I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard. He's talking about wild animals. I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. Verse 37. And David said, the Lord who delivered me. From the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. What bold faith. David knows who's in charge. Over beast and over man. Over armies and over kings. That's what it looks like to have a heart for God. Does that look like you? Do you see the headlines? And does your heart go after the cause of God in the world? You hear that Canadian pastors are arrested or people can't meet because of governmental regulations that have gone too, too far. Does your passion flow for the living God and his work and his people in the world? David's righteousness is also highlighted in the book and the Lord continues to exalt him because of his pursuit of righteousness. What do I mean by that? David pursues the things of God. He doesn't kill Saul when he has an opportunity. He doesn't kill that fool, Nabal, who insults him and abuses him. With Saul, you can see in chapter 24 and some of the later efforts, David had two opportunities to take Saul's life in a cave and in a camp at night. And he doesn't. And his speeches on those occasions said, we don't dare touch the Lord's anointed. Why would David be afraid to kill Saul? Well, God is alive and well. God's the one who raises up. God is sovereign. Who am I? To usurp God's rights. And so David in those cases is preaching to others. Let's all live. God can take care of it. Let me give you one bit of David's speech from 1 Samuel 26 beginning in verse 9. This was the second time David let Saul live. And you can see how he has continued to grow in his understanding of God's sovereignty. He said to Abishai, verse 9, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives... The Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. David's theology kept growing. God can take care of God's enemies as long as I don't step out of line. I don't want to usurp and take that role. And see, here is the key distinction between Saul and David. 
One commentary put it this way. The man after God's own heart submitted to God's word, obeyed his prophets, and found acceptance and forgiveness despite his many glaring faults and failures. That's what David did. Saul obstinately clung to his rights as king, but lost the throne. That's the contrast. And it's not just good king, bad king. It's about the true king who lets these things play out. As you sow, so shall you reap. The one who humbly comes to me, I will lift up and deliver. And all these things in the life of David point ahead to the true king, Jesus. We're getting to the end here. David and his being exalted isn't just about David, isn't just about God's Old Testament office as king. It's pointing ahead to the one God will send into the world to be the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus. You see, David is, is here part of the typology of the Old Testament. As uh, Jonathan Edwards or others explains it, there are three types in the Old Testament that, that point ahead. There are institutional types, like the sacrificial system. That's a type of what Jesus would do, but it's an institution. There are providential events that point to the future, like the Exodus, just as God got his people out of slavery, God can bring sinners out of darkness to life. But there's also a different type of pointing ahead typology where it's personal. There can be an individual who in some way points to God's savior. Joshua, Moses, they point to the dimensions of Jesus. But the pinnacle of God's foreshadowing and typology is David. David is the key Old Testament figure who will point us to Jesus. Do you notice that? Here's a very quick survey. Don't even try to turn past all these pages. When you get to the Gospel of Matthew, for instance, it's David is the reference point to understand who the Messiah is. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Who? Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's how Jesus is introduced. Matthew 1.20. As Joseph considered these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. The Bible asserts that Joseph and Mary both were legal descendants of David, so Jesus could be from that tribe. Matthew 9.27 as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out loud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Matthew 12, 23. All the people were amazed at the teaching and work of Jesus and said, Can this be the son of David? Matthew 15, 22. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Matthew 20, verse 30. Behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard Jesus was passing by, they cried, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the last one from Matthew 21, verse 9. This is Palm Sunday. The crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. David becomes the type, the category for people to think about Jesus. One who is righteous, who will not usurp, but serve the Lord. And even through suffering will fill his office and bring about the possession of the promised land and the peace of the kingdom. And here comes Jesus. And they connect the dots as we should. As Peter did in that Pentecostal sermon in Acts chapter 2. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David... 
that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. God's not bringing David back, but God has someone like David and better. The Lord Jesus Christ. First and second Samuel are at a strategic spot in the word of God, in the history of God. To show us who God is. And to set the stage for Jesus. The son of David, the son of God. History, prophecy points us to Jesus. It's Jesus who brings the kingdom and brings individuals into that kingdom. The golden years of the kingdom of God are still arriving. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of Christ as it spreads. Let me leave you with three closing applications this morning. It's good to see that survey, but it should provoke from us a response as we've understood who God is from this part of the Bible. Number one, we need to exalt him. We need to praise him, exalt the Lord who works so wondrously for our salvation. That's what Hannah did. Isn't it great? Hannah, the barren woman, finally gets a child and she's not singing about her child. She's singing about the Lord who does great things. Lord, I'm amazed at how you work. You're so gracious to me. I don't deserve this. And you do this. You lift up the lowly and you'll put down the the arrogant. That's what triggers her, her experience of God. Do you exalt the Lord who works in your life? When you have a blessing fall in your lap, do you praise the blessing? Or do you praise the giver? My soul exalts in the Lord. Second closing exhortation, evade. What should we evade? We should evade the pitfalls of sinful self-righteousness. In other words, don't be Saul. Don't be Saul. I want everybody to remember that. Oh, everybody wants to be tall and handsome and, and successful and have an army, right? No, don't be Saul in his selfishness. Self-centeredness. Doing what he thinks is best when he knew explicitly what God wanted. Hannah warned about that in verse 3. Do you remember? Talk no more so very proudly. Don't talk tall. Don't be tall, Saul. The Lord's half-brother, James, would write in James 4, 6. That God gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So work at it, friends. Saul found it easy to be religious. Saul prayed. Saul interacted with the prophets. Saul did these things and thought he was doing right. Be careful not to be self-righteous and self-centered. As Paul would write to the Romans in chapter 6. Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. He's saying, don't let sin be king. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. The word dominion 
talks about being under the rule and authority. Who's your king? If your king is Jehovah, the Lord our God, you can be freed from the dominion of sin. And you should be living under his dominion gladly and willingly. So the third exhortation is entrust yourself to the greater David, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Exercise faith in him. If David's a model for us, it's not how to beat Goliath, but how to have faith in God, even through seasons of difficulty and hiding. We saw David on the run so much, but David's faith grew and grew and grew, and he was teachable. And when he sinned, and he sinned, he repented, he was corrected. Entrust yourself to David's Lord. Look to Christ, our David, our champion. The one who kills Goliath for us. The one who provides a kingdom in a promised land. Exalt, evade, and trust. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you this day for your manifold goodness to us. We thank you for the scriptures and giving us understanding and also motivating us to know you better and to serve you well in our day. Father, we're thankful for grace to cover our sins. We're thankful for the greater than David to shepherd us and to lead us home. Bless your people here and in every place who trust in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.